Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Chicago has always been a wellspring of music. Lately, its big export is a genre of rap called drill. We speak to an author who spent time with drill artists and ask whether the music simply reflects or actively promotes the city's gang violence. And getting your whites whiter has come a long way since the Romans, who used urine. We take a historical look at soap, crossing paths with Victorian values, sparking the field of surface science, and now offering a clean win against COVID. First up, though... The commission has designed the format, six roughly 15-minute segments, with two-minute answers from each candidate to the first question, then open discussion for the rest of each segment. President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden took to the stage last night in Ohio for the first American presidential debate, moderated by Fox News host Chris Wallace. Despite the early attempt at rule-setting, the end result was chaotic. I got rid of the individual mandate. Excuse me, I got rid of the individual mandate. I'm not here to call out his lies. Everybody knows he's a liar. But you I just want to make sure... I want to make sure... Vice President... Can I be honest? It's a very important question. Vitriolic. Don't ever use that word. Oh, give me a break. Because you know what? There's nothing smart about you, Joe. Will you shut up, man? One of the big debates... Wait a minute. You get the final word, Mr. Well, it's hard to get any word in with this clown. And unlikely to change many voters' minds just five weeks before Election Day. We have ended this segment. We're going to move on to the second segment. That was really a productive segment, wasn't it? The debate left even seasoned commenters in shock. As someone who's covered presidential debates, that was the worst presidential debate I have ever seen. And raised serious questions about whether President Trump would accept the outcome of November's election. I would say that watching the debate was like watching a car crash, but at least a car crash happens quickly, is over quickly. John Prudeau is The Economist's US editor and the host of our American politics show, Checks and Balance. This debate was frankly hard to watch. It was an hour and a half of mainly President Trump just talking over Joe Biden, trying to throw him off his stride. It was free of much substance if you went there for policy, for what either man would do with four years in the White House. It didn't fit the moment, which, of course, is one where 200,000 Americans are dead from COVID-19. The economy is in a mess. There are problems with wildfires in California and the West, and America's in the midst of a bout of reckoning with itself over race. None of that was really apparent. It was a pretty awful thing to watch. So how did it get so out of control? I mean, there was a plan at some point, wasn't there? There was a plan. The candidates are meant to speak for a couple of minutes each uninterrupted on each question. And there's a certain amount of allotted time for crosstalk 
There's a moderator, Chris Wallace of Fox News, who's a very experienced, well-respected journalist. Twitter thought that he did a terrible job last night by allowing President Trump to interrupt constantly and losing control of the process. I think that's a bit unfair. I think he was in an impossible position. The only way this debate could have been moderated was if the moderator had the power to cut the microphones. It was quite a difficult thing to do to the President of the United States anyway. And the whole thing was was just a jumble, frankly, Jason, for an hour and a half. So there's nothing that you would reasonably call a highlight then, just just a shouting match? There weren't highlights so much as lowlights. One interesting part was Chris Wallace pressed President Trump on how much, if any, federal income tax he'd paid recently. That's an issue because the New York Times scoop that he paid $750 in federal income tax in 2017 and no federal income tax at all in about 10 years in the past 15. He said that he had, in fact, paid millions of dollars in federal income tax. Another one was when Joe Biden started talking about his son, Beau, who died of cancer and had served in the Iraq war. He was a patriot, and the people left behind there were heroes. And Donald Trump took that as an opportunity to attack Vice President Biden's surviving son, Hunter, that was excruciating to watch. He was thrown out, dishonorably discharged. That's not true. It wasn't dishonorably. And then I suppose the other low light that jumps to mind was when Chris Wallace, the moderator, brought up Charlottesville and white supremacists in America and invited both candidates to condemn them. Joe Biden did, talked about a group called the Proud Boys. President Trump, given this very easy opportunity to take a pretty clear stand on something important, declined to do so. What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacists and right boys. Who would you like me to condemn? White and right Proud boys. boys. Stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left, because this is not a right-wing own, problem. This is a left But another point that's been in the news for the past week or so is the, the integrity of the election. Was, was that at all part of the debate? It was. That was the closing question. Chris Wallace said to the two candidates, will you accept the result if you lose effectively? Biden said, yes, encouraged people to go and vote. President Trump, when asked the same question, sort of said, well, and then started saying that mail workers in West Virginia were selling ballots and that Democratic-run cities were sending double ballots to try and rig the election and really refused to say that he'd concede if he lost and encourage people to think that this election would be would be fraudulent. This is going to be a fraud like you've never seen. The other thing, it's nice on November 3rd, you're watching and you see who won the election. So that was the worst moment in what was a pretty awful debate. Given all of that, is it reasonable even to ask the question, who won the debate? I think that's a very good question, Jason. This debate will have been watched by millions of people. Some of them will have made it to the end, like me. If we just forget for a moment about the content of the debate, the context here is important. Joe Biden went into this debate about seven points up in national polling averages. Donald Trump needed a breakthrough. His strategy seemed to be to discombobulate and frankly insult Biden in the hope that he got confused and looked sort of senile and old, which has been a theme of the Trump campaign, that Vice President Biden isn't fit to be president and that the radical left would take over once he was in charge. He he failed on that score. And so I don't think it was a win for Donald Trump. I don't think it's going to move polls. Debates tend not to move polls anyway. Um, and you know, if 
President Trump needed a breakthrough to rescue his polling numbers. This wasn't it. What do you mean by that? Why, why is it that the, the, the debates don't move the polls? There's all this attention on them, all this punditry. I think it's partly because the people who pay most attention to the debates are the political hobbyists and junkies, and they've all made up their minds already. This isn't just a sort of assertion. There's quite a lot of data on this. So um, we did some analysis of polling data compiled by a couple of political scientists, Robert Erickson, Christopher Wozen, who are at Columbia University and the University of Texas at Austin. And those numbers showed that past presidential debates had only a very small and sort of temporary effect on the polls. So, so if the candidates then are, are essentially talking to people who have made up their minds, then, then the bid here is, is simply to, to double down on, on what their, their hardcore of supporters already think and know about them. Yes, Jason, in practice, I think that is what happens. There aren't that many undecided voters out there at this point. This ought to be an opportunity to sway some of them. I don't think that's what will have happened last night. And because of the relative polling positions, that goes down as a loss for Donald Trump. This debate also sets the tone for the remaining debates and the rest of the campaign. It was so bad that there's some question now about whether the two remaining debates that are scheduled will actually take place, though. Really? It's as bad as that? They would simply give up on the rest of the debates? I don't have any inside intel on that, Jason, but the debates happen with the cooperation of both candidates. One candidate, likely Joe Biden, I think might well say that debate was such a mess and I wasn't allowed to speak. I'm not doing the remaining ones. Mr. President, your campaign agreed to both sides would get two-minute answers uninterrupted. Well, your, your side agreed to it. And why don't you observe what your campaign agreed to as a ground rule, okay, sir? If he never keeps his word. Because, because, no, back, no, no, I'm not asking. Certainly the feeling immediately after the debate last night was that it had gone so badly, been so chaotic and so ugly, frankly, that America might not be well served by having two more of them. And I guess you'll be looking further into this and, and trying to get some insight intel for her checks and balance this week. Yes, that's right, Jason. We'll have a podcast looking at the debate and talking about misinformation in American politics, and that'll be going out on Friday. I look forward to it. John, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Last month, in a prosperous part of Chicago, where all the luxury boutiques are, it's called the Gold Coast, two cars pulled up through a street, and four men got out of the cars, pulled out weapons, and started shooting. Adam Roberts is our Midwest correspondent. Their target was a chubby man in a blue tracksuit who was standing outside of a luxury goods boutique and they unleashed a hail of bullets against him. Breaking right now, one person is dead, two others hurt after a shooter opens fire in the Gold Coast. At the scene, as many as 60 shell cases. He slumped to the ground. The windows behind him shattered. 
His companions were also shot and wounded. And tonight we're learning that the victim who was killed is a well-known rapper. The victim was a man called FBG Duck. He was a rapper. He was a drill musician who was targeted by gang enemies of his. It shocked Chicago, despite the city having so many murders and so much violence. This killing really stood out for being exceptional, for being the most blatant example of gang violence that had broken out in the centre of the city for many, many years. You say he was a, a drill musician. That's connected to the killing? So FBG Duck was a singer of drill music, and that's a form of music that emerged about 10 years ago in Chicago. It rose up on the south side, the predominantly African-American, somewhat poorer, and sometimes quite violent part of the city. And it's a form of music that is associated with the gangs that are prevalent on the south side and other parts of the city. And it's a form of music that is quite sombre, quite ominous, using rather dark, violent lyrics that will celebrate, for example, the murders of his enemies, or will boast about the guns that he has, the money that he has, the drug dealing that he does. So it's a fairly dark form of music that has become very popular. So FBG Duck was particularly notorious because only a month before he died, he'd released a track and a video that would become the most successful of all the tracks he ever released. And it's a fairly standard form of drill video. It's him dancing with his friends and, and his uh, associates with guns, with money. And in effect, he's just celebrating the murder of a lot of members of a rival gang. And there are many who speculate that it was because of this track that he was targeted while he was out on a shopping spree. And how common is that sort of musically inspired violence? Well, that depends whose analysis you want to take. So the police in Chicago certainly argue that online activity is spurring a big uptick in deadly violence. The mayor of Chicago said something similar. An individual um, who fancies himself as a rapper, there's been an ongoing conflict between... Um, she suggested that FBG Duck, for example, was tracked because he was boasting on Facebook about his shopping spree and then his rivals were able to track him down. That online activity is adding and fueling the violence that is taking place in the streets. As much as these young men fashioned themselves and presented themselves as these like experts in firearms, most of the time like these guys didn't own guns. It was often only when they were taking selfies for Instagram that they actually ever held any of these firearms. They call them block guns. They're kind of like these communal guns that they have on kind of a timeshare basis. Forrest Stewart is an ethnographer at Stanford University. For his book, Ballad of the Bullet, he embedded with drill rappers on Chicago's South Side for more than 18 months. What he learned made him question the often made link between online bravado and violence on the street. We're sitting around in one of their friends' homes. The kind of air is full of weed smoke. Guys are starting to upload to Twitter and Instagram and somebody decides to go get one of the block guns. One of the young men actually holds a gun to my head. I'm shocked, I knock the gun away. And he laughs. He tells me that the gun was unloaded. 
And so I grab the gun out of his hand and I see that he has in fact taken the magazine out of the gun. I cock the gun and pull back the slide and a bullet flies out. So there was a bullet sitting in the chamber the entire time that he's got this gun put to my head. And so this was just one of the many instances when I saw that these personas of these gun-toting super predators that they put out on social media actually don't hold up to reality. So with FBG Duck, we can't be sure the exact relationship between any of his videos. I, I will note that like he was already at a super high risk of being shot anyway. FBG Duck and his best friends have been engaged in a bloody gang war since the time that FBG Duck hit puberty. At age 13, 14, 15, he is watching his neighbors be killed. He's watching his best friends be killed. So before he ever even makes a rap or before he even ever makes a taunt, there's already bloodshed being spilled between him and a whole bunch of people. To blame him making some taunt on social media is to really blind us to the fact that like, this is a kid who's growing up in crushing poverty in one of the most violent neighborhoods, who's hyper-traumatized, who's surrounded by this stuff. Like, why aren't we drawing a causal link between those conditions and him getting shot? Why is it that we're so fixated on a Twitter post or a, or a YouTube video? You know, given his social conditions, he was subject, he was gonna be subject to that kind of victimization almost like whether or not he put up this diss track or not. Adam, how much of a role do you think Drill itself plays in gang violence? I'd hesitate to say that the music causes the violence, but it certainly celebrates the violence. If you ever watch the videos, they are always of young men standing around dancing and they are waving wads of cash various forms of weaponry. There have been examples of men not just dancing around with handguns and AK-47s, but with rocket launchers. These are young men who are celebrating the violence and trying to show how tough they are, even when in reality they might not be the hardened gangsters or the really tough guys they pretend to be in their videos. So it certainly celebrates the violence. It's very hard to be sure that it causes the violence. And is it fair to argue that those who don't exist in that world of Drill but who listen to the music have a part to play in all this? Well, the consumers of Drill are everywhere. They're certainly not only on the south side of Chicago. They're certainly white as well as black consumers of Drill. There's a thrill that comes, I suppose, with listening to music that's associated with violent gangs. And there is an argument to be made that it's the consumers of this, with every listen that they make online, to the violence, who are encouraging these youngsters on the south side of Chicago to dream that this is a route out from poverty and from desperation to become successful, to get money and to get status. I wouldn't go as far as to say the consumers are therefore responsible for the violence, but they're part of the chain. And we often forget that the consumption of things has a big impact on whether these young men decide to get involved in it in the first place. Thanks for joining us, Adam. Thank you. In the pandemic era, purchases of soap have surged. It's the lowest of low-tech solutions to tackle a sophisticated adversary. But there's more to it than mere cleanliness. Soap brings with it associations, values even, that hark back to a time when cleaning products were marketed exclusively to women. 
The additives and fragrances may have modernized, but much of that core message hasn't. So a strange thing happened in the Industrial Revolution that almost by chance all of the men's work became outsourceable and all of the women's work stayed at home. Catherine Nixie writes for 1843, our sister magazine. There was an interesting paradox that whereas the Industrial Revolution lightened the work for men, it made women's burden at home much, much heavier because everything had to be cleaner. You had to have white shirts, white collars, children had to be cleaned, steps had to be whitened, sheets had to be cleaned every week. It was backbreaking, really heavy work. And at the heart of it was this new abundance of soap and the eagerness of the soap companies to sell it. So soap started to be sold to women not just as a practical tool, but kind of as a mark of themselves and a way to make themselves better in the eyes of the world. And the soap companies started in part because the meat packaging industry had a lot of leftover fat. You mix fat with ashes or some kind of alkali. And almost as if by magic, you get this stuff that cleans. You take these two filthy-seeming things and you get something that cleanses. So what became known as women's work then became closely aligned with cleaning, with soaps and the like, and, and the advertising industry responded to that? Yes, there was this Victorian ideal that the angel was in the house and making the house perfect for everyone, and men were out doing mucky, grubby worthwhile jobs. And soap advertising plumbed straight into this because it implied at once that the woman was supposed to be clean and cleaning. And what women were left with was what was repackaged as fun. I mean, it wasn't fun. It was very, very hard work. But soap was sold to women at once as a pastime and a pleasure. It's all you need to make your family happy and you happy. She is thinking, I wonder how I look. And he is thinking, you look beautiful just beautiful. This girl has discovered the soft touch of today's new lux. And to an extent that lingers on. You get these imperial leather adverts saying that if you've had a difficult day, you can have a little bit of me time in the bathroom, wash the day away as though, you know, what women need isn't isn't help or the man to chip in. They just need to have some time with some soap and a bath. Imperial leather. But how did soap get from the primitive ashes and alkali mix to the the well-marketed product we know today? One of the people who was key in making people realise what soap really was was this almost forgotten scientist called Agnes Pockles. She was in Germany at the end of the 19th century and she and her brother were both very smart. He went on to be a famous physicist. But she, being a woman, was left at home to look after her parents and Like anyone who has cared for anyone, old or young, you'll know that she'd had to do, therefore, a lot of washing up. She observed how the suds of the soap were behaving and she saw some amazing things. If you grind pepper and put it on the surface of water, and then if you put your finger in a dab of washing up liquid and then touch the surface of the water, the pepper kind of races away from it. It goes so fast you can't even see it happen, but it disappears to the edge of the bowl. And this is what she noticed. And then she worked out from that the surface tension of water. And that was the start of a science that's now called surface science that's becoming increasingly important and is important in understanding how you wash things off other things, which at the moment is quite a popular topic. And obviously in the in the pandemic era we're we're all using soap, thinking about soap quite a bit more. 
Well, it would be nice to think, given that we're in the pandemic, that we're all eagerly washing our hands. But as it turns out, when you look at the statistics, it seems that women seem to be a lot keener to wash their hands than men. So an American survey before the pandemic found that only 75% of men wash their hands after using the bathroom. And 90% of women do. And this hand washing seems to hold true for all aspects of life. And it just seems to be women wash more and wash better. Catherine, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Catherine scrubs clean the full history of soap in 1843, The Economist's sister magazine, available at economist.com slash 1843. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. See you back here tomorrow. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.